You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Three, two, one... But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet Man, is on the phone. Episode four. Here we go. The podcast. podcast. It is Monday, February seventh, two thousand twenty-two. People, I hope everybody's doing well. I hope everybody's having a great day. I hope everybody is ready for a loaded, loaded, loaded episode of the Air Tour Sports Podcast. Here's what we got to talk about today. Somehow we are now entering the middle of February, a week before the Super Bowl. College hoops is taken off, and we still have insanity in college football. I tell you a little bit about this Brian Harson situation to lead the show. I know I said last episode I wouldn't talk about rumors and message board innuendos and all that stuff. Well, now we have concrete details that Brian Harson's job may be in jeopardy at Auburn. We'll talk a little bit about that. We will talk also about the chaos at Michigan where Jim Harbaugh flirted with the NFL, flirted with the NFL, flirted with the NFL, decides he's going to come back last week. And oh, by the way, his offensive coordinator, the Broyles Award winner for the top assistant coach in college football, decides, you know what? I'm good. I'm going to go to Miami, go work with Mario Cristobal. Finally, we'll wrap with some college basketball. We'll talk a little bit about that Duke-North Carolina game. It's North Carolina tournament team, by the way. We talk a little bit about Kentucky-Alabama. We talk a little bit about Kansas-Baylor. And maybe I wrap. I, I don't know yet. We'll see what the time looks like on the teams that I believe are good enough to win the national championship. We will discuss all of that. With that said, though, let's get to the topic of the day. And the topic of the day is just this absolute insanity at Auburn. And if you listen to Friday's show, great show, by the way. If you didn't listen, go back and listen. Jimbo Fisher segment was fire. Um, If you didn't listen to that show on Friday, there was about a one-minute window where I kind of briefly paused and I said, look, there is a story going on right now at Auburn that is total message board rumor and innuendo and conjecture. And I said, on this show, I don't deal with message boards, rumors, this, that. If something concrete comes out, if something tangible comes out, then we will address it on today's Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Well, over the weekend, something tangible came out. As there is, again, absolute chaos at Auburn. There was a message board rumor. But the message board rumor, I think, was a bigger metaphor for there is a real big 
disconnect between Brian Harson and certain elements of the university, certain elements of the football program, certain elements of the players, on and on and on and on and on. And on Friday, the athletic director, Alan Green, said that he was actually planning to meet with the football players, some of the football players this weekend, to discuss Brian Harson, what's going on, what's working, what's not. I think there's at least a possibility that Brian Harson does not survive this season or does not survive these next couple weeks. And so with that said, let's break it down. Let's get into it. And let me start by saying this. There's a lot of context and a lot of nuance in this story. And so I am going to do my best to kind of break it all down and give you all of the details. But it's going to take a minute to get you all of the details to get you to where we are today here on Monday with Brian Harson's future at Auburn in Jeopardy. And the details at Auburn are pretty straightforward, but they really go back a little over a year ago when Gus Malzahn was fired and Brian Harson was hired. And if you go back and think about that coaching cycle, I talked about it on this show, but if you go back to that coaching cycle, think about the insanity that it was. First of all, Gus Malzahn gets fired a couple days after a 5-5 five and five regular season during COVID year. I think it was 5-5, five and five, maybe 4-4. Four and four. They, they went 500, basically. And if you remember at the time, it was like, well, nobody's going to fire coaches during COVID. Nobody can afford the buyout. And then Auburn's like, you know what? We'll come up with the $20 million. Gus Malzahn, pack your bags, get the heck out of here. And so Gus Malzahn was really, I believe, if I remember correctly, the first really high-profile coach that was fired uh, last coaching carousel cycle. And when that happened, it led to this wild, crazy coaching search. First, Steve Sarkeesian is going to interview, then he doesn't. He obviously ultimately ends up at Texas. Brent Venables interviews, but oh, by the way, Brent Venables has been asked about that interview over the last couple weeks when he took the Oklahoma job and said, you know what, the alignment wasn't there. I felt like there was a disconnect in some places. I said I was good. Billy Napier interviewed. Now, my, I don't remember, I don't know if he was ever officially offered the job and turned it down or if he wasn't, but Billy Napier was involved. And then, of course, there was the big faction of fans that wanted Kevin Steele, the former defensive coordinator, well-respected and well-liked in that community, to get the head coaching job. And so there was that whole mess, and it ended with Brian Harson getting the head coaching job. And I'll be honest, I did not personally love the Brian Harson head coaching hire. Um, if you remember listening to this show, I said, look, I'm sure he's a great guy, but he's coming from Boise State. He was a player at Boise State. He was an assistant coach at Boise State. He was the head coach at Boise State. He has basically spent one year of his career in the SEC footprint. I said at the time, I said, look, I'm not saying it can't work. I'm not saying it won't work. But there isn't a very good track record of guys that have basically spent no time in the SEC at all coming to the SEC and having success. The one that immediately comes to mind for me is Brett Bielema coming from the Big Ten, thinking he knew everything, getting his face smushed in the dirt for three or four years and eventually getting fired. But beyond what I thought, uh, by the way, I should say, by the way, I was eventually kind of talked out of it by people that I respect in the media. I remember Jay boy my, uh, you know, the guy who works for Colin Cowherd or used to work for Colin Cowherd, Jay boy telling me, look, Harson's good, Harson's a culture setter, Harson's this, Harson's that. So there's that element of it. I didn't personally like it. I think people in the media that knew him better kind of said, you know what, give this guy a chance, he could work. But I do think it's important to note, as it pertains to the last couple weeks, this was not a universally beloved hire at Auburn either, which is where I think we get into a little bit of the mess. But to continue forward to kind of tell you what, what happened, we have to go to the season and what happened during the season, and then more specifically what has happened since the season ended. First of all, season is played to Brian Harson's credit. Auburn actually starts off playing really, really, really well, okay? They start off playing really, really, really well. They start off 6-2, and two, very good start to the season. Only two losses are at Penn State for a night game. 
and which, by the way, they could have won that game very easily. And then they lost to Georgia, but basically everybody got smoked by Georgia this year. So Auburn fans weren't happy about it, but they kind of understood. So you start out 6-2, and two, everything's going well. All the things that Brian Harson promised, culture, accountability, toughness, physical toughness, mental toughness, all that stuff is playing out on the field. Well, then you fast forward to the next week, you go to Texas A&M, and you lose to Texas A&M, 20-3, can't even move the ball. Well, it's Texas A&M, they're pretty good, or at least we thought at the time, A&M ends up finishing 8-4 and four overall. But then after you lose to Texas A&M, guess what happens? You lose to Mississippi State at home. And that was when it started to be like, okay, you can lose to Georgia. You can lose at Penn State. You can lose at Texas A&M. But you can't lose to Mississippi State at home. And then, oh, by the way, the next week, you lose at South Carolina. And then the week after that, you lose to Alabama in the Iron Bowl. And then after that, you lose on a Monday in December to Houston in the Birmingham Bowl. So Alabama's playing for a college football playoff national championship. Georgia's playing for a national championship in the college football playoff. Auburn's playing for the Birmingham Bowl championship on a Monday night in December. They lose to Houston. They end the season on a five-game win streak. And if that wasn't bad enough, and that was really bad, trust me, you end the season on a five-game losing streak with losses to Mississippi State at home at South Carolina first-year head coach and to Houston. If that five-game losing streak was not bad enough, though, it gets worse from there. You know how they say on the commercials, oh, wait, there's more? Oh, wait, with Brian Harson, there's more. Season ends, fires Mike Bobo, the offensive coordinator. Season ends, defensive coordinator Derek Mason, very well-respected in the industry. I know he didn't work as a head coach at Vanderbilt, but a guy that people like, a guy that people respect, he ends up leaving Auburn as the defensive coordinator to go take the D.C. job at, uh, at Oklahoma State. And that was the first kind of like, oh, wait, wait a second now, Derek Mason left too? And then on top of that, this past week, Austin Davis, who was hired as the offensive coordinator out of the NFL after you fire Mike Bobo, ends up deciding that he is going to leave as well. Or maybe he says that he resigned, who knows exactly what happened. But the bottom line is coming off a five loss, coming off a six and seven season with five straight losses to end the season, you now have to replace both coordinators because both coordinators left after the season. One of the guys you hired to replace the guy that you fired has already left, and it is now the middle of February, and you're still very much putting together your coaching staff. On top of that, but wait, there's more. On top of that, you had 20-plus players enter the transfer portal. Since the season ended, 20 players have left Auburn, many of them notable. Uh, Bo Nix, who's obviously the legacy starting quarterback, has decided to transfer. Lee Hunter, who we'll get to in a minute. A guy who was a very high-profile recruit has decided to transfer. On and on and on down the list, your 2022 recruiting class is not very good. You don't sign any players in the late cycle here in February. And that basically is where it gets to us on Thursday night. Where on Thursday night, that rumor came out, and I don't know if I officially said what it was, but there was a rumor that Brian Harson had had an extramarital affair with a staffer at Auburn, a female staffer on the, the recruiting, uh, you know, on the recruiting staff, that Brian Harson had an affair with a recruiting staffer. And I bring that up because it is clear that everything finally came to a head on Thursday and Friday of last week. Everything finally came to a head where an offseason that started with a five-game losing streak then you lose 20 players to the portal. Then on top of that, you also lose both your coordinators, 
one leaves, one gets fired, one of the guys that you replaced to replace the other guy ends up deciding to leave as well. And you find yourself in a situation where there are message board leaks, all that good stuff, with multiple, multiple, multiple players coming out, some in favor of Brian Harson and some against Brian Harson. And as I said, it all resulted in a, uh, a statement from the, the school president that they're separating fact from fiction, and then also with the AD meeting with the players over the weekend. So that is the context of everything that happened. That is what you need to know, how we got here on whatever it was, Friday afternoon into Friday night into Saturday. Here's what you need to know going forward, though, because this is what I think is important. I think this is what matters, and this is, to me, the more interesting part of the conversation. Who's to blame? What went right? What went wrong? And what needs to change? And by the way, is Brian Harson's future, you know, is Brian Harson going to survive at Auburn? And so when I look at this situation, when I look at what is going on at Auburn, I think there are two things that can be true. And what do I say all the time? Two things can be true in a certain situation. And I don't think there's any more crystal clear example of when two things can be true than the situation with Brian Harson. I think one, and I don't think, I know I've talked to people about this, I don't think he's very easy to work for. I don't think he's a very nice guy. I don't think he's easy to play for either. And he probably needs to do some introspection on his interpersonal relationships, how he handles people, how he handles players, whatever. But what I also think, if you ask Brian Harson, and I know this as well, is that he believes that he is creating a culture of accountability, of toughness, and of ultimately winning at Auburn. And essentially that he is the modern-day Bo Schembechler. Remember the Bo Schembechler, the famous line, those who stay will be champions? Well, we have all these coaches in college football that talk about culture and accountability. Brian Harson's trying to do it in real time, and it's clear that some people don't like it, some people don't like the transfer numbers, some people don't like the, the staff turnover, and some people somewhere, whether it's boosters, whether it's players, whether it's parents, whether it's this, whether it's that, whether it's some combination of all of them, are trying to get Brian Harson pushed out the door. So you ask yourself, Torres, how do you know that he is trying to build in a, a culture of accountability, a culture of toughness? How do you know that some guys don't like it, that some guys don't? Well, it's because since all of this started over the weekend, we have had multiple players come out on both sides of the coin. There have been plenty of players who have come out in defense of Brian Harson, and this is a very important thing to note. Chandler Wooten, who was a captain last year, now getting ready for the NFL, said, this is via Twitter, we didn't need a best friend, we needed a coach. That's what we had. On top of that, you had another player, Jeff Schmedling, Coach Harson and this staff are building men of character, block out the noise, and work hard work. On top of that, I saw on Sunday morning, right as I was getting ready to record this segment of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, I saw another player come out, and I thought this was maybe the most, uh, you know, the, the, the most interesting of all of the statements. It came from a player named Tony Fair. And he tweeted out, this is an exact quote that he wrote on his iCloud iMessages. Coach Harson gave us nothing short of work hard work. He brought a competitive edge to everything we did, and you need that in this level of ball. 
What head, what head coach runs with his players while they're conditioning? Harson did. I didn't receive the time on the field I would have liked, but that didn't take away from him being a damn good coach. He trained us to be war ready. The record we got didn't come from his coaching. It came from the cancers on the team that spread and are still spreading. This is what we dealt with this season. The only word to describe what Coach Harson did, I won't get to the rest of it because it's references to cancer, but that is a very strong statement from a player on the team who, oh, by the way, wasn't even playing but could see what's going on around him. And so what it appears to me is, again, what I just said. I don't think Brian Harson is easy to, 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 to coach for if you're an assistant coach. I don't think he's easy to play for. And I'll even take it a step further. I think he's probably a little out of touch. I thought it was very interesting. Smoke Monday, a safety, a guy that was one of the best players on Auburn this past season, a guy that decided to stick around for the, the, the bowl game when he easily could have opted out, said this on Instagram Live. He said, since Brian Harson got hired, he never had one conversation with my mom or my dad. He probably don't even know their name. As a coach, how do you explain that? And so, again, I think all of this paints a big, broad picture. I think all of this paints a picture of a guy that isn't easy to play for, isn't easy to coach with, isn't easy to coach under, and probably isn't very relatable, and probably has a lot of things to work on in his personal life and in his communication skills and all that good stuff. But what I would also say is that I can't help but think that he is trying to build a culture of accountability based on what some of those guys have said as well. Beyond that, I thought there was one final quote. By the way, I'm going quote after quote after quote after quote after quote, but I think it's important here. I saw this quote, and this one really stood out to me. This was from Lee Hunter, who started at Auburn, who decided to transfer to Central Florida this offseason to go play for his former coach. Here's what he said. Coach Harson has the true mindset for a winner, but has a terrible mindset as a person. The reason I chose to leave the to leave Auburn was because we got treated like we wasn't good enough and that we were like dogs. I mean, if that doesn't say it, does what what does? Because here is what this guy said: He has the true mindset for a winner, but he doesn't treat you very well. And so, to me, that is the bullet point, big picture. And I know I'm rambling. I know I'm going in a lot of different directions. But if that doesn't tell you what's going on at Auburn, I don't know what does. I don't know what does. He doesn't treat him well. Treats him like dogs. Okay, work on that, Brian Harson. But at the same time, the guy that left said point blank, he has the mindset of a winner. Since when we're back, we're, and by the way, I know we talk about this. We just talked about it last week with Jim Harbaugh. We talked about the idea that in football now, you have to have a coach that's more relatable, that gets it, that is more in touch with his player. I get all that. But at the same time, the player admitted himself, the guy has the mindset of a winner. Let me ask you a question. Before Nick Saban was Nick Saban, before he won all these national championships, you think he was a nice guy? You think he was easy to play for? Or do you think probably some of the players that left his program at Michigan State, left his program at LSU, maybe even left his program at Alabama when he first got there would say the same thing? Well, he doesn't treat us very well, but he's got the mindset of a winner. Wouldn't you say the same thing about Urban Meyer when Urban Meyer took over at Bowling Green, Utah, Florida, and Ohio State? I know that players did because I know players that played for him. Not a very nice guy. Wouldn't have a beer with him. But he's going to push us to be our best. And so that, to me, is the essence of this whole Brian Harson thing. Don't think he's an easy guy to coach for. Don't think he's an easy guy to play for. But we now have multiple, multiple, multiple players saying, this is the coach that we needed. And then, oh, beyond that, even the guys that are leaving are saying, yeah, he pushed us really hard. It wasn't for me. 
but he pushed us really hard. And so to me, that is the essence of this entire conversation. Let me take it one step further. Because to me, I think the most important quote on this Brian Harson thing actually came from Brian Harson himself. Brian Harson had an interview with ESPN on Friday, and here was how he ended the interview. Certainly, I'm the right man for the job. There's no doubt about it. No one is going to have a better plan than I do, but we've got to change some things. This place is not going to be a championship program until we change some things. You've got to let the head coach be the head coach and support him. And that, to me, that last sentence is the essence of what is going on here. Because I don't claim to have all the answers. I don't claim to have insight into every single thing that has happened in Auburn's football program. But what I can tell you, Auburn has probably a, what, 30, 40-year history of kind of meddling with things behind the scenes. No disrespect to Auburn fans, but you know it's true. Tommy Tuberville's the head coach. AD sneaking around the side coop trying to interview Bobby Petrino. Tommy Tuberville ends up staying. They end up going undefeated in the 2008 season. He eventually gets fired. Not 2008 season, the 2004 season. He got fired in 2008. Gene Chizik wins a national championship. Two, later, two years later, he's fired. Gus Malzahn, as I said, fired. <laughs> fired after uh, last season when everybody said you couldn't fire people because of COVID. And so what I will say about Brian Harson, what I will say about the whole situation at Auburn, it reminds me of something that I said about Texas after they lost to Kansas. And if you remember this show, I did a big, big, big segment on Texas losing to Kansas. You can find it on YouTube. You can find it in the archives, whatever. But what I said was, at the time, was this. I don't know if Steve Sarkeesian's the right guy for the Texas job. Just like I don't know if Brian Harson's the right guy for the Auburn job. But at the same time, what I said was this. Don't blame Steve Sarkeesian for the loss from Texas to Kansas. Don't blame the players. Don't blame the culture. Because every single guy at Texas that I hear, oh, it's the culture. Oh, it's the former staff. Oh, it's the players that I inherited. Instead, blame the boosters. Blame the people behind the scenes. Because every single time something goes wrong, the people with the money demand change. Every single time something goes wrong at Texas, we need a new coordinator. We need to do this. We need a new head coach. We need a new assistant coach. We need a new strength coach. Whatever it is. And every single year at Texas, the reason they haven't had success since Mac Brown was there was because every single year they're changing something up. And so a kid commits to one head coach and the head coach is gone. Quarterback commits to an offensive coordinator. The offensive coordinator is gone. A defensive star commits to a defensive coordinator. The defensive coordinator is gone. And all of a sudden you look up and it's like, yeah, no wonder they never have success. It's constant chaos. It's constant turmoil. And it's the same thing at Auburn. I don't know if Brian Harson's the right guy. I don't know what he's going to do with his staff. I think it's probably a really, really, really bad look that he has had so many coaching, so much coaching turnover in one year. I think it's a bad look that Derek Mason left for Oklahoma State. I think it's a bad look that Austin Davis, whether it's Brian Harson's fault or Austin Davis' fault, that Austin Davis leaves after a month or so on the job. But at the same time, I think the essence of this entire conversation comes down to what Brian Harson said. And Brian Harson said, let the head coach be the head coach. And so I don't have answers. I don't know what's going on. Why? I know what's going on. I don't have answers. I don't know if he's the guy. I don't know if this will work. I don't know how long it will take. But give Brian Harson time. It's very clear that there are certain players in the program that believe in him, certain pro players in the program that believe he can continue to build a championship-type program. But if you decide to move on now, 
And again, this is assuming that the internet rumors aren't true, that he hasn't done anything malicious, that he hasn't, um, you know, had a, had an extramarital affair with his subordinates, that he hasn't done this, that he hasn't done that. If it's just leaks from inside somewhere trying to get him fired, Auburn fans, you got to get out of his business, man. You got to let the guy do his job. I don't know if he's the answer at Auburn. I think he's got a lot of tough questions to ask about his staffing. I think he's got a lot of tough questions to ask about the transfer portal stuff. But what I would also say is you are not going to get this right by continually changing things over, by continually changing coaches, by continually changing coordinators, by continually changing everything every single year. And so I'll be fascinated to see how this plays out, but I'll just sit there and I'll say until I see something malicious with, with Brian Harson, until I see something um, illegal, extramarital affair, whatever, I say, Auburn fans, let the man be, let him build his program. I just want to do, I want to take a quick break. I want to come back and I do want to talk about another college football story <laughs> involving our buddy Jim Harbaugh uh, as his offensive coordinator has left. I think it's a direct reflection reflection of his awkward flirtation with the NFL over the last couple weeks we are going to discuss that and then we're going to get to a lot of college hoops from over the weekend I will be right back all right everybody I am back gonna be back gonna be back I do want to I actually want to stay with some college football and it's wild because I don't ever remember this much college football going on this late in the calendar. Yet here we are in mid-February, and we basically have a full 40, 45 minutes of college football talk on the Air Tour Sports Podcast. But that's where we are, and there was another piece of news that happened over the weekend, and it's funny, right, because I don't do a lot of transactional stuff on this show. I mean, I don't, t- I don't do a lot of coordinators are leaving here and this defensive backs coach leaves there and all that good stuff. I, I, that's not what I do on this show. I, 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 it's just not what we do. But something happened on Sunday that was so big and so important and there was so much detail, context, nuance behind it that I do think we have to discuss it here. And that was the news that Josh Gaddis, Michigan's offensive coordinator, who just won the Broyles Award as the nation's top assistant coach, announced that he is leaving Michigan to take the offensive coordinator's job at the University of Miami. And I don't normally talk coordinators and this and that and moving to... But I bring it up because I believe that Josh Gaddis's decision is a direct reflection of Jim Harbaugh's awkward, bizarre, strange flirtation with the NFL over the last two months, you know, month and a half, six weeks, whatever it was. I believe this could have been avoided. I believe Jim Harbaugh screwed this up. And now I truly believe that Jim Harbaugh has a huge mess on his hands. I don't believe Josh Gaddis is necessarily the last assistant coach to leave. And I do wonder this. Did Jim Harbaugh mess up a really good situation and was last season officially as good as it gets at Michigan? And it's funny, right? Because when I saw the news on Sunday morning, that was my initial reaction. This was a direct reflection of Jim Harbaugh, um, you know, weird flirtation that went on for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and I had a bunch of Michigan fans tweet at me oh you don't know what you're talking about guys leave for jobs all the time coaches change jobs all the time and yeah like like those Michigan fans they're 100% right they are 100% right in that analysis coaches leave for jobs all the times Uh, graduate assistants take position jobs Position coaches take coordinator jobs. Coordinators coordinators take head coaching jobs. What almost never happens, though, is a guy the high profile of Josh Gaddis 
leaving for the exact same position at another school. And you know how I know that? You know how I know that? We have a fact. Here is the facts on a Broyles Award winner, a guy this high profile winning the assistant coach of the year in college football, leaving for the same job somewhere else. The Broyles Award was created in 1996. This stat via Chris Vanini of The Athletic. I thought it was really interesting. The Broyles Award was created in 1996. There has only been one time where a guy wins the Broyles Award as the nation's top assistant coach, either an offensive coordinator or a defensive coordinator, and then leaves for the same job at a different school. We've had guys leave for head coaching jobs. We've had guys leave for the NFL. Only one time since the award was created in 1996 has a guy left his job for a a parallel job, for the same job at a different school. That was Gene Chizik after he won the Broyles Award, ironically, at Auburn in 2005. He then leaves to take the same position, defensive coordinator at Texas. So to sit here and say that what happened at Michigan is totally normal, it happens all the time, this is the equivalent. It'd be like if it snowed in Arizona today. And you turn on the news, it's usually 100 degrees in Arizona, you turn on the news, and the news said, snow in Arizona, first time since 2005 that we've had snow. First time we've had snow in 17 years. Would you say that's something that happens all the time? Would the news anchor say that's something that happens all the time? Or would you say, no, that's a totally rare abnormality that happens once in a generation because that's exactly what happened at Michigan on, on Sunday. And so because of that, I believe that it is a direct reflection of the decision that Jim Harbaugh made over the last month or so. And to be clear, I think every, per- like every person in life has a decision to do what makes them happy, right? You, have a, you, you do what's best for you. Leave jobs, take jobs, you know, leave a relationship if you're unhappy. But what you always have to do is consider the other people around you. And so I, I don't blame Jim Harbaugh for pursuing NFL jobs. But think about what Jim Harbaugh did in Ann Arbor over the last month. Michigan is coming off its best season probably basically since like 1997 when they win a national championship. Beat Ohio State, win the Big Ten, go to the college football playoff. And as soon as that's done, all the people that helped him make that possible, he just said, yeah, you know what, I appreciate that, but I'm going to go do what's best for me over here. How would you feel if you were part of that? And let me take it a step further. I think it was one thing for Harbaugh early in the process to leak that he was interested in two jobs where he had somewhat obvious ties. He had ties to the Bears, the McClaskey family, or however you say it, the ownership group there. He had ties to Vegas and the Raiders. Maybe Mark Davis wants to make a big hire. Okay. I think it's one thing to do that early on in the process, and then it becomes pretty clear that you're not a candidate and it's not going to work out. I think it's another thing to do what Jim Harbaugh did last week. I think it's another thing to very clearly not be in the mix with the Minnesota Vikings, very clearly throw your name in the mix very publicly, very publicly reach out to the Vikings and express your interest in the beginning of February. And then on top of that, on top of that, you go to take an interview on National Signing Day, and I know Michigan's class was mostly wrapped up and there wasn't really anybody else to sign. I get all that. But on National Signing Day, imagine being an assistant coach on that staff on National Signing Day. 
you spent a whole year grinding, working, putting together game plans, coaching your positions, being away from your family, recruiting, getting on the road, sacrificing everything for the good of the program, for the good of the team. Now on National Signing Day, this guy is leaving, and you don't know what's going to happen if you, if you end up, if he ends up taking that job. I know there were reports that Josh Gaddis was going to be the next head coach if Michigan left, but he also sent out a, t- there was a tweet um, from somebody at ESPN named Tom Van Heron that essentially, uh, essentially insinuated that Josh Gaddis was not happy with the administration, was not happy with a few things, and it sounds like it was far from a done deal that he was definitively going to be the next head coach. So imagine you're Josh Gaddis, or ma- imagine you're another assistant coach, and on National Signing Day, you've worked so hard for so long, and your boss decides to leave to interview for another job. And now in the middle of February, when Lincoln Riley, Brian Kelly, Mario Cr- all these guys have been in place for months, there are no good jobs, there is nowhere else to go, you could be out of the job. All it took for potentially the entire Michigan coaching staff to be out of jobs here in mid-February, all it potentially took was the Minnesota Vikings saying yes. The Minnesota Vikings saying, you know what? Jim Harbaugh, you are our guy. Come be the Minnesota Vikings head coach because it was clear that Jim Harbaugh wanted that job. And so now, in the middle of February, you're scrambling for a job. Would you be pissed off if you were Josh Gaddis? Would you be pissed off if you were one of those assistant coaches? Because I know I would be. And especially on National Signing Day, I know that Jim. Har- I know that the, 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 the recruiting class was mostly locked up. But at the same time, you don't think those assistant coaches were getting calls from parents? You don't think those assistant coaches were getting calls from players? You don't think those assistant coaches were getting calls from 2023 and 2024 recruits asking what the heck was going on? Because I know for a fact that they were. And so to me, this is all about how Jim Harbaugh's acted and what I was told and what I was texted by a source that I trust, and you guys know darn well. I've been basically right on everything Michigan-related since this show started. I have some really good contacts in the state of Michigan. I told you in the Mel Tucker stuff, three weeks, four weeks before Mel Tucker, anyone talked about that extension. I told you Mel Tucker's going to make stupid money because Michigan State is not losing this guy like, he, that, like they lost Nick Saban 30 years ago, 20 years ago, whatever it was. I told you that was happening weeks ago. And I'm telling you right now, I got a text, two texts actually, from two people that I trust. Josh Gaddis might not be the last one to leave. All those other guys on that staff that were left in the lurch I think they're starting to look around and say, you know what? This guy has no loyalty to me. Why should I have loyalty to him? And it just takes me to the bigger picture at Michigan overall as we start to wrap this conversation. And it takes me to something my radio partner on Saturdays, Jason Martin, said to me on Saturday night, and I thought it was a really interesting, I thought it was a great point by Jason. And Jason said, have you ever seen a guy have better PR handle the PR side of a job? Better in a season, and then immediately ruin it in the offseason. I tweeted it the other day. I tweeted it on Sunday. This is basically like that movie of Mice and Men or that book of Mice and Men. I think it was a book and then a movie. I don't even know. Remember there's Lenny, and he's this big, strong guy. and He's got this little mouse, and he loves his little mouse, and then he does something happens. He squeezes the little mouse's head, and then everything he loves is dead in his hands, blood everywhere. That's basically Jim Harbaugh. That's basically Jim Harbaugh. Think about it. He is coming off a season in which on the field, there's no question that he had the most success that he ever had. 
12 and one regular season, beat Ohio State, go to the college football playoff. Yeah, you lose to Georgia, but Georgia was awesome. On top of that, there was the narrative beyond the narrative, the narrative of, well, he took a massive pay cut to stay. And then they offered him more money and incentives. They didn't really offer him, but it was part of his deal. He gets a bunch of money and incentives, and he gives it right back to the university. And for like a one-month period there, Jim Harbaugh was actually a sympathetic figure. Jim Harbaugh was like, we, we actually like this guy. Look at this guy. He's giving money back. He's this. He's that. And then the offseason comes. And then the offseason comes, and he butchers everything. He butchers everything. He, you know, he, butch- he butchers everything in the perspective that he basically says, like I said earlier, yeah, I appreciate all your guys' hard work, but I'm going to go do what's best for me now, whatever. And now we have a situation at Michigan where it is now the middle of February. He has to replace his defensive coordinator, Mike McDonald, who left to go back to the NFL. Can't blame him there. That was a great opportunity. Go back to the NFL, be the, the Ravens' defensive coordinator. Now he has to replace his offensive coordinator in the middle of February as well. And so to me, I sit there and I say, I think this could have been avoided. I think if he had just treated people better, I think if he had just basically said after the initial push between the Raiders and the Bears, okay, this NFL thing for, isn't for me, I think if he hadn't gone to interview with the Vikings on National Signing Day, it could have been different. Instead, Jim Harbaugh is in a mess that he completely created on his own. And I'll say this as I wrap on Michigan. On Friday's show, I tried to make the argument, okay, Jim Harbaugh is back. What does the future of Michigan look like? But I think with the Josh Gaddis news, with the fact that I have two texts in my phone right now confirming that other assistant coaches are looking to leave, I really do wonder, was that night in Ann Arbor where he beat Ohio State? Was the night a week later when he beat Iowa to win the Big Ten? Is that as good as it will ever get for Jim Harbaugh at Michigan? Because I'm starting to think that it just might be. I'm starting to think that he screwed this thing up really, really. All right, everybody, I am back, going to be back, going to be back, and I do want to switch gears, and I do finally, after all this college football in the middle of February, I want to talk a little college hoops, because this was the weekend where it felt like, okay, college hoops has officially arrived. It is now a national mainstream thing. Listen, we have pockets of the calendar where college hoops is really, really, really awesome earlier than mid to early to late February. We obviously have that week, feast week and Thanksgiving. Once we get into January, we start to get the big games in the middle of the week that are awesome. But this was the weekend where it was wall-to-wall, huge games, all-day college basketball on Saturday. We had Kentucky-Bama. We had Baylor-Kansas. We had Indiana-Illinois. We had all these great games. And let's get into them. Let's break them down. And the one that I did not mention is, of course, the biggest one of them all. And so let's start there. Let's start in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where for the final time in his illustrious, never-ending career where his hair has not changed colors at all, yeah, I'm talking about Coach K. Don't know if you heard, it was his final trip to Chapel Hill on Saturday. Duke enters the Dean Dome, the place where Michael Jordan played, the place where Jerry Stackhouse played, the, the place where Rasheed Wallace played. Entered as a ho-hum three-point favorite. Let's see where this game goes. Oh, it was a beatdown of epic proportions. Duke is up as much as 19 to 5, just four minutes into the game. They're up 31 to 8 at the under 10 minute mark. 
and it turns into a rout really quick as Duke and Coach K's final visit to the Dean Dome, they win 87-67. to And what I would say about this game is this. Listen, I could do five, seven, ten minutes on Duke, how awesome they are, how good they look, how A.J. Griffin is emerging, how I think Mark Williams is the X factor down low because there just aren't that many teams that have guys that are seven foot one that can do the things that he does. But you guys and girls already know that. And as I often say, usually when it comes to a big game like this, oftentimes the more interesting story is in the losing locker room. So I could go ahead and do four, five, six, 10, 15 minutes on Duke. I could talk about Coach K, Paulo Bencaro, AJ Griffin, whatever. But to me, the much more interesting storyline is at North Carolina. I talked about Hubert Davis a few weeks ago. I still think they made a mistake not doing a national search, but we're going to put that aside for right now. Because during the game, Jay Billis said something very interesting that I actually fundamentally disagree with. Jay Billis said, yeah, North Carolina's struggling. And he did this in his Jay Billis voice where he's preaching down to, to us, you know, peons from above. Well, 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 North Carolina's struggling, but they're, they're obviously an NCAA tournament team. And I respect Jay Billis. I think he's really good at his job. But at the same time, let me ask you this. Are you really sure about that, Jay Billis? Know you work for ESPN. Know you got to promote the single biggest game on your college basketball calendar every year, twice a year. But are we sure North Carolina is an NCAA tournament team? Because I'm not sure that they are. And so let's get into it. Let's break it down. And I'm going to get into the resume and all that stuff in a minute. But let's just start with North Carolina because they are a very, very, very weird team this year. They are 16-7 and seven overall. And again, we're going to get into that resume, tournament, non-tournament in a minute. But they're 16-7 and seven overall. And they are 16-7 and seven in a very bad ACC. And if you've watched them at all this year, Something just doesn't seem right with North Carolina. Have you paid attention at all to the Tar Heels? There's just something that is really off about them and really weird. And I have heard from multiple people. I actually heard Jeff Goodman say this as well on his show, one of his shows that he does with the Field of 68, and I have heard much the same, is that they have a lot of guys in that program, in that locker room right now that care about the name on the back of the jersey much more than the front of the jersey. I don't know if that's 100% accurate, but what I can tell you is a couple things. One, I've heard it from enough people where I'm kind of sort of kind of sort of ready to believe it. And then two, what I would also say beyond that is this. They sure do play like a bunch of kids that don't really care about anybody but themselves. They sure do play like a bunch of kids that are only worried about how do I get from where I am now to the next level. They sure don't seem to have very much fight in them, toughness in them, whatever. And where I think it shows especially is on the defensive end. And I've watched North Carolina a bunch of times this year, and I try to figure it out. It's one of those deals, right, where sometimes you see something during games and you sit there and say, okay, is that really happening the way that I think it's happening or am I imagining it? Whatever. So I decided to look it up because I remember about three weeks ago I watched North Carolina play Wake Forest on a Saturday night, and Wake Forest absolutely ran them out of the gym. And I was watching the game, and I said, this is like the worst defense that I've seen. Like, like every – it, like it was like a matador with a cape, like pulling the cape, another layup for Wake Forest, another layup for Wake Forest, another wake, layup for Wake Forest, which, by the way, Wake Forest is an awesome story, I should add, by the way, but that's neither here nor there. And so I bring it up because I'm watching this game, and I said, this is the worst defense I've ever seen. 
And then I watched it again. I watched North Carolina again against Duke on Saturday, and I said, this is the worst defense I've ever seen. The game itself, I mean, the stats speak, uh, the, the, the stats tell you everything you need to know. Duke shot 58% from the field, 48% from three. And so I, I said, is this just Carolina in big games or what? So I decided to look it up. No, they are one of the worst teams defensively in college basketball, especially relative to power five, power six, power programs that should be better than they are. Went ahead and looked it up. They currently rank, as I record here, 270th nationally in points per game allowed. Just one spot behind LaSalle and one spot ahead of Grambling. So shout out to North Carolina because they've made a couple more defensive stops than Grambling. But I know what some of you would say. You would say, well, come on. They play fast, tempo, we know how this goes. Just because you give up a lot of points doesn't mean you play bad defense. So for fun, I decided to look up, how's their field goal percentage defense? Are they getting after it? Are they at least contesting shots, making things tough? They rank 220th nationally in defensive field goal percentage, and I think that speaks to why they have been so bad. And for those of you who would sit back and say, a Carolina fan that would say, oh, you know, I mean, it's the first year and Hubert Davis and he's doing this and he's doing that. Here's another fun fact for you. I went ahead and looked up field goal percentage defense, okay? I looked up that stat. You can find it online. A little place called the internet. Check it out. And <laughs> on the internet, on the website that I looked at, NCA.com, something struck me. You know who's number two in college basketball in field goal percentage defense right now? It's the Arizona Wildcats. Not sure if you heard Arizona has a first-year head coach in Tommy Lloyd right now. You know who's number nine in field goal percentage defense? The Texas Tech Red Raiders, not sure if you heard, they have a new first-year head coach. His name's Mark Adams. He's awesome. You know who's number 10 in field goal percentage defense in college basketball right now? Oh, just a guy named Mike Effin Woodson in the Indiana Hoosiers. So three of the top 10 teams in field goal percentage defense are under first-year head coaches, and Carolina ranks 220th nationally. They can't stop anybody. And so I bring it up. Because I want to go back to the original point that Jay Billis said. Jay Billis, in his Jay Billis voice, well, I mean, obviously, Carolina's a tournament team. Really, Jay? We really sure about that? Because let's break down that resume, because I don't think Carolina's a tournament team. With the loss to Duke, Carolina falls to 16-7 and seven overall. Doesn't sound terrible. It could be worse. It could be, I don't know, uh, whoever. Hate to say it, Louisville. You could be Louisville. You could be Maryland. You could be uh, uh, Oregon State. You, you could be. You could be worse than sixteen and seven. Here's the problem, though. Let's dig a little deeper into that sixteen and seven resume for North Carolina. Also eight and four in the ACC. Currently, North Carolina has sixteen wins, seven losses. Their best win is over a Michigan team that is currently eleven and nine. Currently not projected to make the NCAA tournament in most bracketologies. I didn't look up all of them, but most bracketologies, Michigan is not an NCAA tournament team. Beyond that, that is their best win, which you know what it means? Right now, they don't have a single win over a team currently projected into the NCAA tournament. Now for fun, let's look at the losses. Here are North Carolina's losses in year one under Hubert Davis. Lost by nine to Purdue. Okay, that's not that bad. Purdue's a really good team. Lost by 17 to Tennessee. Oh, that's not so good, but it's okay. I mean, anything could happen against Tennessee. The Falls, Zakai Ziegler, anything could happen. 
Then they lost to 29. They lost by 29 to Kentucky. Well, it's Kentucky. Oscar Sheboy might be the national player of the year. We're going to talk about Kentucky in a minute. They might be the best team in the country. But then they lost by 28 to Miami. Oh, that's not good. Then they lost to, by 18 to Wake. Oh, that's not good. And then they lost to 20 by Duke. So you look at their games, and I talked about this a few weeks ago with Carolina. They now have seven losses. Six of them are by 15-plus points. That's not going to get the job done. And so you look at the totality of their resume right now. The totality of their resume is pretty straightforward. 16 and 7. Zero good wins. How about this? 0 and 7 against quad one opponents. People are kind of you're dusting off your college basketball brain. What is a quad one opponent again? A quad one opponent, the NCAA breaks down opponents into four different quads and you get certain credit depending on who you beat and where you beat them, home, road, neutral. Quad one wins are the best wins that you can possibly have. North Carolina is now 0-7 in quad one games. And here's the crazy part. Because the ACC stinks, guess what? They've only got three more quad one games on their entire schedule for the rest of the year. Now admittedly, now admittedly, now admittedly, they still have the ACC tournament, could pick up maybe a win or two there. But the point that I'm trying to make is this. It's crazy, but we only have four weeks left in the regular season of college basketball. And I bring that up because we only have four weeks left in the regular season of college basketball. And North Carolina is 16-7 and with a grand total of zero good wins and essentially only three more chances to even pick up a quad one win unless something happens at the ACC tournament. So they've only got eight games left in the regular season and very few chances to even pick up quality wins. And so to finish this point and to move on to the rest of the weekend, what that tells me is this. Duke Carolina, that was fun, that was this, that was that. But the bottom line is pretty straightforward. If the NCAA tournament started today, I don't care what Jay Billis says, North Carolina would not be an NCAA tournament team. And I should mention, by the way, I don't think I mentioned this earlier. Credit Gary Parrish. I saw him. I think he tweeted it out or wrote it or something. But he said that to date, since the NCAA implemented the quad system about three, four years ago, there has never been a team that has gotten an at-large bid with zero quad one wins on their resume. So essentially, if the tournament started today, North Carolina probably wouldn't be in. And North Carolina has to start winning the games that matter really quick or they're going to be left out of the tournament. Should Hubert Davis have been hired as the coach? I talked about that a few weeks ago. I will save that rant again for another time. But they're not playing defense. They don't seem to care very much about each other. And this team has zero good wins after an embarrassing loss against Duke. All right, let's quickly wrap with some of the rest of the weekend that was in college basketball. And let's start with, ironically, the game that came after Duke Carolina. And that was Alabama hosting Kentucky. And I've talked a ton about Kentucky on this show the last three weeks. And every weekend, they play the biggest game of the weekend. They played Auburn a few weeks ago. They played uh, Kansas last weekend. So I'm going to stay away from Kentucky. I'll share a quick thought on Kentucky at the end. But I want to focus on Alabama. Because Alabama, to me, is one of the single most fascinating teams in college basketball. Reigning SEC regular season champ. Reigning SEC tournament champ. One of the weirdly good if not the best out-of-conference resume in college basketball. Yet I said it about two, three weeks ago when they lost at Georgia. I said, look, 
The idea that Alabama is going to magically flip a switch because they were awesome last year and they have a great coach in Nate Oates, I just don't think it's going to happen. And to me, it was reconfirmed on Saturday night. And what's interesting about Alabama is uh, for all of the problems that they have, they're currently 14-9 and overall after the loss to Kentucky. I weirdly think they are actually in great position to make the NCAA tournament, as strange as that sounds. 14-9, and 4-6 and six in the SEC. You're probably sitting there saying, how the heck is Alabama going to make the NCAA tournament? Well, it's actually pretty easy. It's because they have the best out-of-conference resume maybe in all of college basketball. They won against Gonzaga in Seattle. Neutral court, but it's really a road game, basically essentially a road game. Um, Gonzaga's probably going to end up being a number one seed. On top of that... They won against Houston at home when Houston was at full strength. Houston's basically trending to be a two-seed. They're a top-ten team in the country. They beat Baylor at home last weekend, and I'll readily admit that this Baylor team, I think, is starting to kind of hit a wall. Injuries, young guys, too much, too soon. We'll talk about Baylor in a minute. But the bottom line is Alabama has a great out-of-conference resume. They have enough good wins right now in conference. They beat LSU at home. They beat Florida on the road. That I do think they're going to make the NCAA tournament. But at the same time, it's not, it's weirdly, even though we think of Alabama as a football school, the expectations were raised so much that I think we thought this Alabama program had ascended under Nate Oates, great young coach, and I still think Nate Oates is a great coach, that they had ascended to this status of like permanent top 10 to top 15 team in college basketball, and that was only reaffirmed with the early season success, the win against Gonzaga, the win against Houston, et cetera. And so the fact that they, have, that they are struggling so much, the fact that this team is not who we thought they were, I think it's one of the single most fascinating things in college basketball. And I think what's especially fascinating about it is this. Much like North Carolina, there appears to be one major issue. And like North Carolina, we now only have four weeks left in the regular season, eight regular season games. Which means that if it ain't fixed by now, it ain't gonna get fixed. And for Alabama, what is that problem? Well, it's pretty straightforward. As weird as it sounds, they can't shoot threes. This team that last year was about three and D spacing, they were this new age analytic, all we do is drive to the rim and either get fouled, make layups, or shoot threes. They're terrible for behind the arc. Not sure how many of you watched the Kentucky game on Saturday night. Alabama finished the game three of 30 from three-point line. Let me... Let me pause. Let me pause. Let me take a deep breath. Let me say it again to make sure you understand. Alabama, which was one of the coolest new age awesome stories in college basketball last year, went three of 30 from three-point land. And on top of going three for 30, you know what else happened? That followed a trend that has basically been going on all year. It's not as though Alabama had one, game, one bad game. It's not as though Alabama uh, is, is lights out and just had a bad night. Alabama's shooting 31% from three-point line this year. Alabama is struggling to hit threes as a team this year. As I said, 30.5% from behind the three-point arc. Javon Quinterly, who shot 43% from three last year, is now shooting 24%. As a team, 31%. This is who they are. They cannot hit threes, and there's no reason to think it'll get fixed. And so to me, what's especially fascinating about Alabama is the reason it's not going to get solved, there's no way to solve the problem. 
and listen, I think if you could criticize Nate Oates, you could say, like, well, I mean, you know, good coaches adjust their style of play. Why isn't he adjusting the style of play? Well, here's the problem. All of these guys were recruited to do one thing. These guards dribble, drive, shoot, kick, pass, whatever. They don't really have a ton of big guys. It's not as though they have an Oscar Shebway or a Kofi Coburn or a Hunter Dickinson or a Trace Jackson Davis they can play through the post. They don't have anybody. And so because of it, it's not as though they can just start pounding the ball into the post more. It's not, they need to hit threes to be successful, and they can't. And so when I look at this Alabama team, I'm just telling you right now, I don't think they can be fixed. I don't think they can be solved with the guys on this particular roster this particular season unless all of a sudden guys start hitting threes that aren't hitting threes. And, and by the way, it might happen. Javon Quinterly, who I just mentioned a minute ago, shot 43% from three the, uh, last season. Well, guess what? He did shoot, and he's shooting 24% this year. To his credit, he did go 6 of 10 from three the other day against Baylor. So it can be done. It just hasn't been done. But I want to wrap on Alabama because I don't think there's anything else to say. I think when it's all said and done, when you look at their schedule, the schedule doesn't get easier, by the way. They've already played Auburn twice. They've played a brutal out-of-conference schedule, but they still have Arkansas. They have a return game at Kentucky. They have an all-of-a-sudden good Texas A&M team, and they got LSU on the road. And so I bring it up to say I think this is who Alabama is this year, and I don't think there's a way to fix it. And I think, you know, and to go back to what I said a minute ago, there was part of me that was kind of like, well, Nate Oates, I mean, you know, coach has got to change the style. Well, well, what can he do? It's not the style. It's the personality he has. This is, he recruited this personnel to play this style, and now he has no choice but to stick with it. And so Alabama, this frankly might be the last time that I talk about them on this podcast. Not because I don't wish him luck, because I love watching Alabama play. Not because I don't trust Nate Oates, because I think he's one of the best coaches in college basketball. But at a certain point, much like North Carolina, you just have to accept who a team is, accept what their strengths are, accept what their weaknesses are. And this team that was built to play a certain way just can't do it. Really quick on Kentucky. I've talked about them a ton. I don't need to get into it. But I think it's time. And I think later this week, maybe on Friday's show, maybe on Wednesday's show, I don't know. I'm going to break down the whatever. X number of teams that I think can win a national championship. And Kentucky's obviously going to be in there. They, they were ranked number five in the country, just went on the road and beat Bama. But here's the thing. I was thinking about this. I think you can legitimately make the case. And I'm not saying I definitively would, but I think you can absolutely make the case. I believe you can make the case today that Kentucky is the best team in college basketball. And I don't really say it on social media because, uh, you know, everyone, oh, Torres, you're a homer. You wrote that Kentucky book a million years ago, so you must love Kentucky. No, I don't really care about Kentucky. I want Kentucky to be good because it's good for business because Kentucky has a lot of fans. They want to listen to a podcast like this. But if they stink, I'll tell you they stink because I told you they stunk all last year. But what Kentucky is quietly doing is borderline incredible, right? Because we talk all the time about college basketball and who have they played and what have they done, what have they this, what have they that. Well, two weeks ago they played at Auburn, and when they had their full team on the floor, they were beating Auburn. A couple guys get hurt, they end up losing the game. Then last week they go to Kansas, destroy Kansas, a Kansas team that destroyed Baylor on Saturday. And then on Saturday they easily took care of business against Alabama. And what I think the bottom line is with Kentucky is this, is if you don't follow it on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis – I do think it's easy to kind of say, well, they're 19-4, and four, they're good, but are they really better than 
Kansas? Are they really better than Duke? Are they really better than this team? Are they really better than Auburn? I think you can make a case that they're better than all of them. They're the best team in the country. By the way, when I tweeted out what I'm about to share with you, I had Tennessee fans. I had Arkansas. I had a couple fan, fan bases that are like, you know what? I love my team, but that's the best team in college basketball right now. And so in terms of why Kentucky might be the best, let me just lay out to you what Kentucky's resume is. Because, again, I think you see 19-4. and four. Well, I mean, 19-4, and four, that's no better than Duke. That's no better than Purdue. That's no better than this team. That's no better than Auburn. But here's what you need to know. They're 19-4 and four overall. At full strength this year, they are 19-2. and two. And I know injuries happen to everybody. Just ask Penny Hardaway. Penny Hardaway loves to talk about his injuries. But they're 19-4 and four overall. They are 19-2 and two when they have their full team on the floor. The team that right now is projected to be on the floor for the NCAA tournament. So it's not like they lost a guy and he's done for the year and now they got to recalibrate. Like this is the team that they are expected to have. 19-2. and two. The two losses without their full strength, they lost at Auburn, they lost at LSU. Had the lead when their guys went down with injuries, by the way. So 19-2 and two at full strength. Here's the crazy part. One of those losses was to Duke on opening night. So if you look at Kentucky's schedule, from November, what are we talking about here? November 11th on, pre-Thanksgiving, we're in February now. November 11th on, Kentucky is now 19-1 and in games that they have their full, that, that they're full strength. And I'm telling you, I think it's time we start talking about them as the best team in the country because it's not just that they're 19-1, but think about who they've beaten. One at Kansas by 20. Could have been 30 if John Calipari didn't let his foot off the gas. One at all Alabama on Saturday, and I think Alabama's a good, like, 7-8-9 seed in the NCAA tournament. Listen. Alabama's beat Houston at home. Alabama's beat uh, Baylor at home. Alabama's beat Gonzaga. So you can't say they're terrible. I think they're broken right now, but you can't say they're terrible. On top of that, I think it's worth noting with Kentucky, um, you know, they beat a Tennessee team by 30 that has, has not lost since that game. Tennessee has won five straight since they lost by 30 to Kentucky. Tennessee's going to be in the top 20 in America when the new poll comes out on Monday. Beat that North Carolina team I just talked about by 30. And so I bring it up to say you start looking at how they're playing, who they're playing, who they're beating, how they're beating them. I think there's a real case to make that they're the number one team in the country. The other thing that I like about them is their personnel. And again, I think this week we'll get into how many teams can win it, what is everybody's strength and weaknesses, all that good stuff. But the one thing that Kentucky has, and I think this is important, they have great guard play. And I don't think you can undersell that come NCAA tournament time. It's funny, I was talking to a coach last week when I was away in Arizona coach that's coached you know deep into NCAA tournaments before sweet 16s elite eights etc and he said dude I cannot express to you how important how important guard play is in having multiple guys that can handle the ball we don't need to get into all the other teams right now but he mentioned Arizona he said they got one point guard he's young he's never played in those high pressure games if he has a bad game or if he struggles or if he dribbles it off his foot or if he gets in foul trouble, Arizona's in trouble. There's other examples like that, but when I look at Arizona, I just sit there, or when I look at Kentucky, I sit there and say they have two really good point guards and then they got two really good players off the ball that can handle the ball in a crunch, Davion Mintz and Kellen Grady. On top of that, you have the most efficient rebounder in college basketball. You shoot the three ball really well. I'm just saying. I'm not saying that Kentucky is definitively the best team in the country. 
but I absolutely think you can make the case. Finally, I want to wrap a couple other things really quickly. Uh, Baylor at Kansas. I think we all made the same comment <laughs> watching this game. Kansas did to Baylor what Kentucky did to Kansas last week. And I'll tell you, I don't think there's any great takeaway in this game. First of all, Kansas is going to figure it out because Kansas always figures it out under Bill Self. Um, I've criticized Bill Self. I've talked about some of his off-the-court kind of transgressions, all that good stuff. But the one thing you cannot deny about Bill Self is this. His teams get better. His teams figure it out. They're always playing well come NCAA tournament time. Now, sometimes they struggle in the tournament. Sometimes they lose earlier in the tournament. But that is a team that is always playing well in January, February, March. And so I bring it up because as I'm watching Kansas, like I'm like, of course they're destroying Baylor. One, Baylor's banged up. They were missing some key guys. But two, this is what Bill Self does. He takes a punch on the chin, and you want to count him out, and you want to say it ain't going to work, and then all of a sudden, look what happens. The dude beats Baylor, the defending national champs, by 24. And so when I look at this game, I just sit there and say, I think Kansas is another one. I don't think they're Kentucky yet. I don't think they're Duke yet. I don't think they're uh, Auburn yet. And we're going to talk about Auburn later this week because they play their biggest game in weeks against Arkansas. But I bring it up because when I look at this Kansas team, I think they're starting to figure it out. Two really good wings in Ochai Abaji and Christian Brown. A couple really good guards in Dewan Harris and a couple other guys. I really, really, really like this Kansas team going forward. And no, it's not just because I picked them to win the national championship. Caw-caw, caw-caw. <laughs> All right, let's get out of here. A couple other notes uh, from the weekend, and then we will roll. One, Gonzaga's doing the thing Gonzaga always does. And if you listen to this show... Every single year, I tell myself I'm not going to pick them to win a national championship, and then they just start destroying everybody, and that's exactly what they did on Saturday night. They go to BYU. I like Mark Pope. I think he's really good, uh, and they destroyed BYU. 90-57 to 57 is the final score. I think the big note with Gonzaga is Chet Holmgren starting to figure it out. Big, seven foot one freshman. You know, we all kind of know the story. Shoots threes, had the crossover of Steph Curry, all that good stuff. Wasn't great early, but it seems like he's starting to figure it out. Saturday against BYU, one of the most absurd stat lines probably in recent college basketball history, okay? Finished with, how about this, 20 points, 17 rebounds, 6 assists, 5 blocks, while shooting 64% from the field and 40% from 3. And yes, I get that you're going to play... Tougher competition than BYU, which might not even be a tournament team, come NCAA tournament time. But at the same time, I'm just telling you, is that when I look at this team, they're starting to figure it out, they're starting to roll, they're starting to do what they always do. Am I going to pick them to win the national championship? I say no, then I'll probably watch them in March, they'll steamroll everybody and I'll pick them. But the point I'm trying to make, they're starting to play really well. A couple other teams that are playing really well, you know, I'll give them credit. Eric Musselman in Must We Trust, the Big Pig Invasion, Eric Mossman's figuring it out. Eight straight wins for Arkansas. They host Auburn on Tuesday. So you start to look ahead to this week. Got a couple big ones. Got Chris Beard, Texas at Kansas on Monday. Got, uh, what is it, Duke, Virginia, I think, on Monday night. And then you also have, on top of that, you have Auburn against Arkansas at Bud Walton Arena on Tuesday. And if you're not fired up for that one, you need to be. 
because uh, that'll be one of the games of the week. Arkansas on an eight-game winning streak coming into this one. Bruce Pearl keeps saying his team is beat up. Uh, I'm not making any predictions, but I kind of think Arkansas might take that one. Also, by the way, quick shout-out to Tennessee, which has now won five straight games in SEC play, as I said, since that loss to Kentucky. With that said, I do think that it's time to get out of here, and it's time to say goodbye. So with that said, I want to thank you guys and girls for listening to today's episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. If you are not subscribed, make sure to do so. Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, wherever you listen to your podcast, make sure that you're subscribed. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media, uh, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram. Make sure to follow Aaron Torres online. Going to have some cool stuff on that website this week, including uh, I'm going to do an update on the college basketball coaching carousel. I've been snooping around a little bit, snooping around, snooping around the chicken coop, trying to figure out who's going to get fired, who's going to resign, who's going to this, who's going to that. We will have an update on the carousel. Louisville, Maryland are already open, and we'll continue the conversation with what jobs I think will be open, which ones might not be, what it all means, all that good stuff. Uh, and I'll probably talk about it on today, on Wednesday's show as well. With that said, I do think that it is officially time for your boy Torres to get out of here. So I want to thank you guys and girls for listening to today's episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. If you're not subscribed, do all that good stuff. Oh, I should mention as well, merchandise. Get your big pig invasion shirts, Arkansas fans, at AaronTorresOnline.com. Get your Revenge Tour t-shirts over at AaronTorresOnline.com slash merchandise. With that said, it's time for me to get out of here. I want to thank you guys for listening. I want to thank you guys and girls for everything that you do for this show. So with that said, shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel who hates my voice. Shout out to, I don't know who. Who are we shouting out? Josh Gaddis? Going from Ann Arbor to Miami? Because his boss was a jerk? I'll tell you what, we'll be back on Wednesday with a new episode of the Tour Sports Podcast. Take care, people. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to, has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.